Pastor Emilio's gratitude and excitement to be back with our body, with this church, and the privilege of, of being in the pulpit again and opening God's Word for you. So please turn with me again to Colossians chapter 2. As we keep Christ central and focused at the source and, and just the whole foundation of this body, it comes with today a very serious warning. So I want to read today from Colossians 2, verses 1 to verse 8. The Word of God says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this so that no one will, be del- no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. The focus of our study today will be on verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, merciful Father, we thank you so much for the redemption that we have now because of and in Christ and through his glorious perfect work on our behalf. Father, we thank you for the promises that are ours in him, that they are yes and amen. And as we look into your word, your truth today, it is also your warnings that are ours. Careful warnings, but warnings fueled with grace from you. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to give us understanding of these warnings and the dangers of drifting, of going off-center, of adding to or trying to supplement Christ in his perfection, in his work, in his grace. So, Father, use this vessel to proclaim your truth to the glory of your name and for our good and for the edification of this church, that we may be your light and testimony, standing firm upon the foundation of Christ himself and none other. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If we were to look back through the history of man 
we would see from from all walks of life, even as far back as as a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah, there have been questions posed about our ultimate reality. Who am I? Why am I here? What what for what purpose do I exist? And where am I going? And there's been an attempt of various worldly philosophers and philosophies developed from these philosophers to seek answers and attempt to provide answers to these questions. And if any of you have had the, I don't know if you'd call it joy, the suffering of working through a class on philosophy in college or not, but you tend to find them to very, be very pragmatic, um, filled with human wisdom, attempting to seek truth and answers apart from God, either, either denying him completely or having some pantheistic or deistic view of him. But anyone who is born again understands or should understand that man cannot begin with himself. We know this from presuppositional evangelism, for we are fallen and any human-centered thought or attempt to arrive at an ultimate reality that begins with man will fail. In other words, we cannot gain knowledge only and primarily through our, our sensory experience, for this is what's called empiricism, and it's a form of epistemology. And Neither can man gain true knowledge and answers to ultimate reality through rationalism or skepticism. Paul even addresses this very clearly in 1 Corinthians 2.9, where he says, Just as it is written, and this is Paul's interpretation of Isaiah, several chapters in Isaiah, but it says, The things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, which is referencing empiricism, sensory perception, and which have not entered into the heart of man, which is rationalism, all that God where we begin with all that God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, truth and reality and purpose cannot be discovered or understood apart from beginning with God, and through this, a work and revelation of God himself, a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul is, is not here condemning philosophy as a whole, for the word itself means love of wisdom or the pursuit of wisdom. And it's an important part of even our investigation and discovery of truth. But when this pursuit is apart from God, when it discounts God, when it excludes God or minimalizes God and is constrained to man himself and our finite understanding, when it's limited to our, our fallen senses and rationality, and you can see what happens if you look at the biographies, the outcomes of these men, these followers that have resulted in a life of despair, Sartre, Nietzsche, no hope, no substance, even years of mental insanity, sadly, ultimately, eternal torment and final separation from the God they denied. But listen to what Paul says in Romans about what happens to men like this when they eliminate God, when they suppress his revelation of truth from both through the creation where he's revealed himself and his word. Romans 1, 
you know this verse is very well. Romans 1, 22, 21 and 22. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. There was no respect in thought or heart or life or any giving of thanks. Ungrateful in their futile pursuits toward anything but God. Unable to give thanks because they find no hope. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And professing to be wise, they become fools. Now before we look at this very, very powerful opening imperative, that this command of Paul, where he begins to introduce his whole polemic against these false teachers and the teaching, I want to take just a brief step back or two and look at the larger context of this first warning. Because if you remember back in, in chapter 1, verses 4 to 7, Remember that Paul is is speaking pastorally with a great word of admonition to us in verse 1. He says, I say this so that no one will delude you with the persuasive arguments. And with what he has established earlier in this letter, we can picture or understand it to be like two, two unshakable pillars. One being the supremacy, the sufficiency, the centrality of Christ himself and the other being the sufficiency of the word of God. Then Paul gives us a command in verse 5 where he says something along the lines of, of, please don't think what I'm saying to you is criticism, but he gives a warning in light of what is happening there in Colossae. But he sees and hears what a great work the gospel has done in your lives through this faithful ministry of Epaphras. And then in verse 6, Paul's exhortation, keep doing what you've been doing. You've been rooted in him. You've received Christ through this great gift of faith. Now keep doing these first works, being built up in him, in love and truth, established in the traditions of the gospel that have been handed down to you once and for all. Be consistent, be excelling in these things, and all the while overflowing with great gratitude and thankfulness to him. And now the rest of this chapter, in chapter 2, Paul expands on what he has started in verse 4. He gives very strong warnings against this false teaching and realized this delusion that there was then is here in our present day. He gives four cases, four markers, that we will eventually get to, and I want to briefly mention here. Today we'll be looking at the first one in verse 8, where he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Further down in verse 16, Therefore, No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Again, in verse 18, the third one, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. And then finally, verse 20, the last marker, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as, and it goes on. 
this was just a peek ahead of what we'll get into, Lord willing, in the weeks to come. But this first clear warning we begin with today is, is that Paul has, has laid for us a foundation. The sufficiency of the word of truth through the apostolic tradition, the sufficiency of the Son of God. We are saved by virtue of our union with him, by grace through faith. And when we become one with him, every privilege, every blessing that he purchased at Calvary's cross is ours in him. This is the foundation that we build upon. And now we're going to look today at Paul's imperative in verse 8. And based on this indicative, there is under this four headings or points I want to focus on. The first one, warning to be alert. Warning to be alert. The second is identify false teaching. Identify false teaching. Third is the source of the false teaching. The source of the false teaching. And finally, contrary to Christ. What is contrary to Christ? So we begin warning to be alert in verse 8. Paul says, see to it. Beware. Be on your guard. Be in a continuous lookout through your walk with Christ in this life. Realize you're going to be exposed to things. You're going to hear things that will seek with a purpose to delude you, to move you away from this so glorious and so vital and necessary foundation in Christ. And here we have in this example that no one takes you captive. No one kidnaps you. No one carries you away like spoils of war by taking captive your thinking through philosophy and empty deception. Paul uses a very rare verb here, sulagogain. It is, it is to carry off. It is to make captive of. And what Paul does now in the rest of verses 8 and on through verse 10 is he contrasts a wrong way of thinking a thinking that can take them captive. And he describes it for us in one term, emptiness or empty deception. And then he will later on contrast with a right way of thinking, which is summarized in one word, fullness. See to it that no one takes you captive. Captive or kidnapped or to make captive of. And think about it, what is it like when you hear the word kidnapped or you picture if through some movie or something you read? When I first read this book, I thought of Robert Louis Stevenson's book, Kidnapped, which is a really good work, but it's not scripture, so I'm not going to get into it and quote it. But David Balfour was, was tricked by his uncle, and he was taken captor and prisoner on this boat. And his captivity meant he was subject to the captain of the boat. He had no liberties. He had no freedom. He could not make choices. He could not make decisions for himself or go wherever he wanted or do whatever he wanted. He came bound to his captor and master. And Paul warns us of this danger of being kidnapped, how serious he regarded the evil designs of those trying to influence this church. Now, please understand, Paul is not speaking of a physical kidnapping, a physical taking captive, not suggesting that we be paranoid or worried that 
As Christians, somebody's always out waiting behind a bush to, to take us and physically kidnap us because our war is not against flesh and blood, but intellectual, spiritual captivity, the battle for our minds, a captivating of the mind with philosophy that is, that is basically empty deception, is a means of, of infiltrating our thought patterns, our mental considerations, where slowly or even radically building up walls, if you will, in our thinking that pervert and exclude the truth of Christ and his word. Thinking that begins to side with with fundamental human-centered realities only. Teachings that lead us away off-center from the centrality of Christ and his gospel. And Paul is through the means of God's grace and spirit here warning of this very real danger. It's a way of thinking that seems to kidnap and, and captivate us, stealing our minds and, and way of thinking to forget or deny or eliminate God. But also note this, Paul's not writing to unbelievers. He's speaking to believers, to the church, to the saved. You may be thinking, how can this happen if, if we are kept in Christ, if we are kept by his power But how often do we hear about this in our present day of teachers, of pastors, famous Bible teachers, answer men who let their guard down and begins considering alternatives or supplements to Christ and his word, either by through religious liturgy or ordinances of men. And Paul's concern is that these dearly beloved saints and and faithful brethren, as he calls them, will be deceived into becoming enslaved again through the philosophy and empty deception and become spoil, actual spoil for the kingdom of darkness that seeks to exclude and blaspheme God. Paul expressed this same concern for the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. And do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Theirs being a yoke of of captivity and returning to Judaism, forsaking the the merciful work of the Holy Spirit and, and returning to these elementary physical requirements of the law and undermining, completely undermining the central New Testament doctrine of being justified by faith. And for the Colossians, God has brought them into the kingdom of his God and Son. And the danger now comes from an enemy who will attempt to reduce these saints to an even more abject captivity than that from which they've been freed. We have a very similar warning from the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 9, where he's reminding these saints in the very same kingdom of Christ, Do not be carried away, misled, seduced, swept away by varied teachings, novel teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. And back here in verse 8, see to it. Oh, beware, brothers and sisters, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceptions. We have Paul's strong, direct warning to the Colossians and to us against being taken captive 
And now Paul is going to describe the means by which these false teachers would use to kidnap these saints. And this is how we, in point number two, are to identify false teaching. We identify it through its methodology, through philosophy and empty deception. This is the only time in the New Testament that the word philosophy is used. And I said earlier, it means the love of wisdom or the pursuit of wisdom. But Paul is not throwing, as I said, a wet blanket over all philosophical inquiry. Don't throw it out out the window. This is not his warning. But there was in his day, and it's so true in our day, a particular way of thinking marked by empty deceit that which is according to the the primacy of human wisdom and of human traditions. Paul has has laid before us, as I said, these incredible foundations, and now he gives a stark warning that there will be these ideas, these tempting, ear-tickling, false teachings that will come along subtly, seductively, almost quietly, seeking to move us away just, just a half a degree off center from the gospel and from that foundation. And they are utterly empty and useless. And this is specific in this text because Paul doesn't include a definite article here or a preposition in his use of the phrase empty deception. And what he means by this is that the philosophy of these false teachers in Colossae is described as nothing more than empty deception, empty deceit, trickery, and not what it happens or appears to be, no matter how deep and profoundly religious they may be and sound and appeal to the flesh, to the human reasoning, no matter how positive that teaching may sound, it is a hollow sham. It is not filled with any true content, content completely seductive and misleading. A simple example, and I know this is a stretch, but my mind was (laughs) challenged by putting something together that would relate to this. Someone told you there's a town out west Texas, Plains, Texas, actually I was thinking of. If you go there and you go into this particular store, in the back of this ice chest, you'll find this large bottle. There's a fluid in there. that Take this bottle and consume it, and it it will... answer all your needs it will get you to that next spiritual level so you drive and drive and drive thirsty tired you get there you run into the store you open the chest here's this nice cold two gallon plastic bottle you take it out open it up and it's filled with air empty deceiving nothing your thirst is not satisfied your soul is not satisfied The contrast to this, as we will see, Lord willing, must see, is the fullness that we have in Christ. By way of application, it means for us as believers in Christ and believing in his word that we are not to approach Christ or the scriptures with a blind, unreasoning faith or our own philosophical presuppositions which would actually pollute our study of God's word. We are to come as one aware of our finiteness in intellect, aware that our minds are affected by our sin nature, and with a humility 
and a willingness to be taught by the Holy Spirit that the Word of God alone is the arbiter of truth rather than our own reasoning. And this brings us to heading number three, the source of false teaching. The source that is the basis of worldly philosophy that brings emptiness. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Scripture divides this source of false teaching under this heading under three prepositional phrases. And it uses the preposition kata, according to. And the first prepositional phrase, according to the tradition of men, provides basically a general statement, an overview description. But it also recalls to mind Jesus' sharp criticism of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the dangers of man-centered traditions in adding to the laws of God and the truth of his word. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7. We're going to find this entire encounter occurred in in verses 3 to 13. But I want to look just at a couple verses here. Mark chapter 7. Here's where the Pharisees are questioning Christ regarding the lack of the disciples observing and complying with the ceremonial washings that the Pharisees held to. And this is one but one example of the extra-biblical laws and interpretations of scriptures within Judaism that had supplanted scripture as, as really the highest religious authority. But look at what Christ says to them in verses 6 through 9. And he, Jesus, said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. And he was also saying to them, You are experts It's setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. We see here both the the eternal prophetic warning and the exercise or the fulfillment of the serious dangers of setting aside biblical, even Old Testament truth for the sake of deceptive human wisdom and traditions. And we can clearly see that the authority of this tradition of men is wrong. Peter also dealt with Gentile traditions as he wrote to the saints in 1 Peter 1.18. And I will read, read the whole context here in verses 17 and 19. Peter says, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, then conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We see that this philosophy and even extra-biblical laws that are according to the tradition of men or human tradition 
this wrong way of thinking is characterized by its wrong authority. The authority is all wrong, deceptive, and fallible. So this tradition, which is, is passed along, given from one another as, as like a teacher to his pupil, this type of passing down or carrying on of tradition does not necessarily make it true and typically will only perpetuate the error. One philosopher adding to another, building upon another system, is only going to magnify the error, although may may appeal very well to the human intellect in that period in time. But what does this wrong authority appeal to in human tradition? Well, in contrast to what? To divine tradition, which begins with God the Father, which the Son received from the Father, which the apostles received from the Son via the Holy Spirit, which we have received from the apostles. And now upon the church, even this church, has been built, says Paul in Ephesians 2, upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. So it's seen both in Old and New Testament, and it is the completed revelation. It is the apostolic doctrine. It is the faith once for all delivered to the saints in Jude 1.3. So we have this tremendous affirmation concerning the sufficiency of Christ and the sufficiency of the authority of the Word of God, this divine revelation, this faith that has been once for all handed down So this first identifying mark of the wrong way of thinking, its authority is wrong. It is based on human tradition that arises from something other than divine revelation. Now the second prepositional phrase in verse 8 that Paul describes the source of the false teaching is this. According to the elementary principles of the world, or as the ESV says, elemental spirits, And we can say from this that the methodology is wrong. This is a challenging passage to fully understand. Pastor Emilio and I discussed it a lot the other night. And it simply means that the basic principles, the the elementary concepts are simply the ABCs. And if we translate it principles, the apostle may be referring to certain philosophical systems a way of thinking in his day that was a predominant focus on the philosophers of that time, whereby they believed in the four basic elements, earth, wind, fire, and water. And so much of their study and so much of their investigation had to do with the relationship of these four basic elements and how we people living amongst these elements were to relate to them. So Paul could be saying that don't let anyone take you captive by these ABCs, these rudimentary basic principles, and that methodology methodology of inquiry is, is all wrong. If you accepted this methodology and teaching, you would, it will cause you to descend and regress from the mature, mature teaching that is found in Scripture. It would be as foolish as a Ph.D. returning to kindergarten. And Paul speaks to this clearly when he addressed the Corinthian church about the wisdom of Christ and the power of God, the theme of our recent conference on the power of the gospel. And 
we read in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 21, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. However, there's, there's a second possible meaning of this phrase in the meaning of stoichia, the elementary principles. And it can refer to elemental spirits or elemental spiritual force of the universe. And this is referring to the, the principalities and powers which sought to tyrannize over the lives of men. And what Paul could be referring to here is, is angelic beings, powers, spiritual authorities. For he uses this phrase three times in his letters, here in verse 8, but also if you look ahead as we read in verse 20, if you had died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. And also in Galatians 4, 3, and ver- verse 3 and verse 9 of chapter 4, so also we while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? These principles, these weak and worthless elemental things are not simply religious teachings but are referring personal to personal and spiritual forces we we understand from historical writings in paul's day that there was this way of thinking that there were spirits angels powers that inhabited the stars the planets and had great influence on the on the thinking and the lives of the people paul talks about this even in first corinthians 8 he says verses 4 to 6 Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things are all things, and we exist through him. So the line of thought or teaching, this teaching would propose is that, yes, there, there, was, there is a divine being, but between that divine being and us, there exists these spiritual powers. And in order for us to truly know the divine, in order for us to reach the divine, we have to approach this divine being through these intermediaries. And men must not only possess knowledge about these elements, but also reverence these principalities and powers, submitting to the rules and regulations imposed on their lives. And this type of thinking began to exert an influence upon the Christian thought of those in Colossae and the early church. 
and that Christ had, in effect, become just another intermediary between God and man. This is very likely what Paul has in view. If we go back quickly and look at chapter 1 in Colossians in verse 16, just the emphasis in these first two chapters, it says in verse 16, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's referring here to angelic beings and powers. Also look at Paul's reference later on here in chapter 2, verse 10. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head of all rule and authority. And in verse 15, when he disarmed all rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And then in verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. So there is, in, in this way of thinking, according to which there are these intermediaries between the divine and the human, between the spiritual and the material. And the false thinking says that in order to arrive, to arrive at, to reach, to, to know the union with the divine, we, we must approach him through these, these spiritual forces and powers. And Paul is, in a sense, anticipating that, that this thinking is going to exert an influence upon the church where people begin hearing things like, oh, you're a Christian? Well, great, great. You believe in the Lord Jesus? Well, excellent, excellent. You, you have the scriptures? Good. You're building upon the foundations? Fantastic. But, but have you heard about this? You, you know, in order to really know God, you, you must do this. You must, to gain some further knowledge of God, you must approach him like this or through this intermediary or through this angelic mediator and, and maybe even participate in this angelic liturgy. And it was very probable that this syncretistic teaching that the advocates and the participants would somehow gain a fullness of salvation and, and reach the divine presence and, and attain some esoteric knowledge that, that would accompany the visions they proposed. My, how we see this in our day as well, don't we? From what's proposed on, sadly, Christian TV to the foolish dependence on horoscopes, the worship of images, how we can attempt to supplement Christ, add to Christ, maybe consider an alternate route to Christ, that there's many roads that lead to heaven. Paul's anticipating this, and he's warning us to see that no one takes us captive by any philosophy, any empty deceit, because its authority is wrong, according to the human tradition. Its methodology is wrong, according to the elementary principles of the world. And lastly, this brings us to our fourth and final point, which is the third prepositional phrase, where we see that the reality of this teaching is wrong, because point four, contrary to Christ, Paul says, all of this rather than according to Christ. 
the reality of this philosophy is wrong because it is contrary to Christ, period, end of statement. It will lead you away from Christ. Paul has clearly and beautifully put Christ on reverential display for us in chapters one, chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. He has shown us that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Christ, the Lord Jesus, is the sovereign creator. He is the only sufficient redeemer. Any way of thinking, hear me please, any way of thinking that moves us, that moves our thoughts, our desires, our lives away from this reality is wrong and extremely dangerous to our souls. Because that way of thinking is seeking to take us captive. Our minds, our lives, our marriages, our church. And it will bankrupt us. It will lead us into a captivity that is utterly empty, meaningless, and destructive. Any way of teaching that challenges the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. And any teaching that is contrary to, attempts to add, or attempts to subtract from the sufficiency and centrality of the gospel, the apostolic tradition that was handed down from Christ to us must be unmasked, unexposed, and reveal its true nature as personal spiritual forces that threaten the Christian community, the church, and our body. These forces bound tightly and at work within this world system cannot be compared to Christ in any way through whom all things, all things were created both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. Amen. And Paul's warning to the church in Colossae, and to Heritage Grace Community Church is a warning that we must seriously heed and be in a continuous, cognizant watchfulness of the philosophy and the empty deception that proliferates our world. With our postmodern relativism, the, the slew of subversive teaching set to undermine the authority of Christ, his gospel, and his church, even to what the world conveys as acceptable, even entertainment and fun, we must examine and compare this to Christ, to his worth, to his holiness, to his truth, to his glory. If our lives as Christians, as disciples of Christ, are the result of, of a divine work that he alone has begun with a purpose to sanctify us, to make us holy during our sojourn here, and to transform us into the likeness of his beloved Son, our Lord and Savior, to prepare us as a bride that will be without spot or blemish, so that we may be with him and enjoy him for an eternity of eternities, then we must see to it, brothers and sisters, that no one deceives us and kidnaps us and drags us away through any empty, deceitful philosophy, any tradition of men, any elementary principle of the world. 
but we must be abiding in Christ, abiding in his gospel, in his word, each and every day. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much again for both your glorious promises to us in Christ. Father, I pray that for each one here, each person, each soul, each family, each marriage, for this church, Lord, that you would be pleased to grant us fresh revelations of your glory, O Lord. Reveal to us the beauty, oh, the sufficiency, the magnificent glory of our Lord and Savior. Father, through the eyes of faith, enlarge our scope of vision. Enlarge our hearts, Father. Give us understanding as we approach your word and humility to receive from you. Oh, Father, keep us ever firm on the foundation And as we pass through that narrow gate, may we be consistent by the grace of Christ and his power to remain on that narrow path. For we know, oh God, that path leads to you, to your kingdom, to your glory. And oh Father, all the extra benefits that are there with you, may our soul heart desire be to be with you to know you above all else. And oh God, grant us as we examine carefully the beautiful righteous standard of Christ. May it allow us to quickly see false, false, false and not allow that introduction, that subtle allurement, Father, even tempt us to look away. Oh, Lord, may our hearts overflow with love and thanksgiving to you as unworthy vessels and recipients of your eternal covenant, Father. Bless these realities and truth to our lives, our souls. And may they be expressed to this world with hope, joy, praise, thanksgiving, and peace beyond all measure. To your glorious name, in the honor of your glorious Son, we pray. Amen.